Welcome all of you boogers of the world to our newest Monday show. I am Dan and you are listening to the Late Night Fright right here on WKMF Cozy Corner Public Radio. With me as always is my very dazed and confused co-host Faith. Say hi Faith. Hi Faith. What day is it Faith? It is Monday. We did Cage Match Mondays. We did. That was a celebration of the filmography of the one and only Nicholas Kim Coppola, better known to the masses as Nicholas Cage. Taps was played when it ended, tears were shed, Kleenex were used, but we decided to keep the Monday show going, and I think we picked someone very worthy of the Monday mantle. Faith, who do we have for the next eight or so weeks? Matthew McConaughey. All right. Or better... We're going to call it Mac Attack Mondays that we're going to go with. Mac Attack Mondays with the one and only Maddie Mac. (laughs) Maddie Mac. Matthew McConaughey. We are going to be breaking down all eight episodes of the first season of HBO's True Detective from writer Nick Pizzolatta. Today's episode is entitled The Long Bright Dark. It premiered on HBO on January 12th, 2014. And this was during what they called the McConaissance Faith. Do you remember the McConaissance when that was happening? Mm-hmm, I do. So McConaughey decided that he wanted to be taken a little more seriously as an actor. And he decided to start doing projects that meant something to him. And this really paid off for him because he ended up winning a Best Actor Oscar for Dallas Buyers Club. And True Detective is part of that career resurgence. And I believe that this series, his performance in this series, could quite possibly be the greatest thing he's done in his career and one of the greatest performances in any medium. It's that good, I think. So... We are spotlighting Maddie Mac, so let's give a little bio on him. Maddie Mac was born November 4th, 1969 in Uvalde, Texas. He first got our attention as Wooderson, the stoner stoner in the 1993 period comedy Days of Confused Faith. That's a movie we watched together, and we both really liked it. Yep. What did you think of Days of Confused? Oh, I love it. It's... <laughs> It's and like one of those classic movies everybody has to see. You, know? you have to see that movie. And we did it just to kind of get off of the beaten path here for just a second. We did a double feature that night of high school car movies is what we called it. And we paired that with American Graffiti. And I think they go really well oh, yeah. together. So <laughs> You have a good memory, too. <laughs> yeah, that was a good night. So. A lot of the McConaughey myth comes from Days of Confused, and when people do an impression of him or quote something, uh, it's usually from that movie. That character is usually at the top of the list. Uh, in 96, he was cast as the lead in A Time to Kill. 
That was adapted from the John Grisham novel of the same name. That film was directed by Joel Schumacher of Batman and Robin Infamy. And it co-starred Samuel L. Jackson, Sandra Bullock, and Kevin Spacey. This is where he really became a movie star. From here, he became best known as a leading man in romantic comedies, oftentimes in the company of Kate Hudson. There were ups and downs, as we said, until the eventual reconnaissance that we find ourselves talking about today. Faith, what do you think of Maddie Mac, and do you have a favorite movie of his? I like him a lot. I always have. He seems like a really, I don't know, down-earth person. And I don't know. I've just always liked him for some reason. And sadly, I've always liked his romantic comedies, <laughs> even oh, though I don't like romantic comedies. There's nothing wrong with that at all. I don't know. He's good in them. He just, I always like his characters. I was around for when he showed up on the scene. And I remember when we saw Days of Confused for the first time in high school, and this was a thing uh, most every weekend or every other weekend we would watch Days and Confused and Wooderson was always our favorite. And like I said, I remember when he got A Time to Kill and when he started becoming the movie star. Now, I will say, I didn't think much of him past A Time to Kill with the romantic comedies, as nice and fun as they are. And right. I do I do enjoy them, but I didn't know that he had this in him. Right. <laughs> I didn't see it then. I didn't think any less of him for doing those romantic comedies. I just didn't see this reconnaissance with Dallas Buyers Club and this and some of that other work he was doing. Even that five minutes in Wolf of Wall Street is just amazing. Mm -hmm. But um, so I didn't like I said, I didn't really think too much of him as an actor. I didn't think up or down on him. I've always thought he was a great guy. He seems right. like a man who's very grounded. He knows who he is. He mm -hmm. has a real spiritual faith based center. Um that he seems to live out mm -hmm. in his day-to-day -day life. And he's not uh, preachy about that. He just, is. this is who he is. Exactly. He is a believer. He has said that. He is on record as saying that. And he's figured something out. Mm -hmm. he, he, he's very grounded and he's figured something out. And I think um, him figuring that out comes along with the reconnaissance, as they said. Like if you had told me, in 93 when we were watching Wooderson that that guy's going to win an Academy Award <laughs> you know I, I would have said you were crazy but uh, he's he's proven time and time again though he is fantastic like I really think True Detective is the best thing that he's done but he's given so many other great performances do you have a favorite uh, performance of his or, or <gasps> movie and the rom-coms are on the table you can you can go I there. honestly can't think of one off the top of my head I, I hate to say it, Days of Confused, I, say, I, I think mean, I is just, <laughs> there's so much there. He, you know, he's not in that movie much and he mm -hmm. steals every scene that he's in and he is the most quoted character in that movie and there's some great quotes in that movie. But uh, this this is really fantastic. I think True Detective is my favorite uh, McConaughey performance and, and it's, uh, like I said, this is one for the ages. Mm -hmm. And as we get more into it, we're going to see more and more why he's, so good right. you know there's a lot of stuff going on here so let's get a little background on the show true detective is from screenwriter and novelist nick pizzolata he was born october 18th 1975 in new orleans louisiana and at the age of five he and his family moved to a rural area of lake charles he is a graduate of louisiana state university go tigers uh, Pizzolatta had written for the television series The Killing, but wanted to be the guiding vision of a show. He says he doesn't do well serving someone else's vision. True Detective was intended to be a follow-up to his novel Galveston, 
but became its own thing. He served as the sole writer, showrunner, and executive producer on the HBO series. Faith, uh, he is from Louisiana, just like us, and this series takes place in a world literally just down the road from us. What did you think of the Louisiana setting, and how eerily accurate were the places and people that populate this world to you? I think that... I think I like it more that it's set here, if that makes any sense. I feel like it's kind of special. But I think that it's, I think where they filmed it, it's definitely an eerie place already to me. So right. it kind of makes the show, it fits well is what I'm trying to get at. You know what I mean? This is one of the few productions I've ever seen that takes place in Louisiana where it didn't piss me off. Right. Because <laughs> the accents were spot on. Mm-hmm. The places were spot on. Now, I've mentioned this on the show before. I'm a musician. I have played all over this state. I have played all over this Gulf Coast. I've played all over the country. I have driven through these places. I have played in these places that they're in in this show. This is so spot on. It's scary. Mm-hmm. I know. The way the people talk and act mm-hmm. is spot on to this area. I'm like you. I think it makes me enjoy the show just a little more. Mm-hmm. Especially, like I said, it almost then has a documentary feel to me, you know, knowing this area so well. And it's, yeah, it it works even better for me on that level. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious uh, what people from out of state would think about it, you know, if I would enjoy this as much not being from this area. But they got this so spot on that it's it's eerie. It is. It's very, like I said, I feel like the place is already so it's it's identical to what it looks like so yeah. the whole setting is perfect there is a yeah there is a juju to this area mm-hmm. down here i'm not sure what the juju is or where it comes from but there's something and i don't want to say it's supernatural but mm-hmm. there's something there's something in the air here right. there's something special and okay. maybe not so special at times about this place and right. we're going to we're going to talk about something in the air at the end of this so All right. So McConaughey was the first actor to sign on to the series, and he was originally asked to portray Martin Hart, the character eventually played by Woody Harrelson. He asked to play Rust Cole and recommended Harrelson, whom he had worked with on the Ron Howard film Ed TV, and he had also worked with him on a low-budget movie called Surfer Dude, so they were friends. Uh, the series was directed by Kerry Joji Fukunaga, who won an Emmy for his work here, and he is currently hard at work on the newest James Bond film. As we get further into this series, we will be spotlighting both Woody Harrelson and Fukunaga. And here is a brief synopsis of the long, bright dark from our good friends at Wikipedia and Faith Wikipedia. It's not lazy, is it? <laughs> what is it, Faith? Efficient. Efficient. So here we go. The long, bright dark. Louisiana, 1995. Detectives Martin Hart and Rustin Rust Cole investigate the ritualistic murder of former prostitute Dora Kelly Lang, found with a symbol painted on her back and wearing a crown of deer antlers, blindfolded and posed as if praying to a large, solitary tree. A twig latticework, like a Cajun bird trap, is found with her body. Cole is convinced that this is not the killer's first victim, but Hart is skeptical. Their investigation brings up the case of Marie Fontenot, a little girl whose disappearance five years earlier was not investigated. Another report is brought up of a child who claimed to be chased through the woods by a green-eared spaghetti monster. Hart invites Cole over for dinner, unaware that it is Cole's deceased daughter's birthday. Cole reluctantly accepts, but losing a battle with alcoholism, turns up drunk. 
Hart and Cole follow up on the Fontenot disappearance with a visit to Marie's uncle Danny. In a dilapidated playhouse, Cole finds another twig lattice work. 17 years later, Cole and Hart are interviewed separately five days apart about Dora Kelly Lang by detectives Thomas Papania and Maynard Gilbo. Hart and Cole have not spoken in 10 years after a falling out in 2002. Cole is shown a photograph of another girl whose body has been found posed in similar fashion to Lang. Papania and Gilbo want to know how the killer could have struck again if he was caught in 1995. So, Faith, what did you think of The Long, Bright, Dark, the very first episode of True Detective? I think it is absolutely amazing. I think it's one of the best um, series openers I've seen in a good while. And I don't know why it took me so long to finally watch it. Because it was so good. Yeah, it's amazing. Let me tell you something. We talked about Twin Peaks, the pilot episode of Twin Peaks from 1990 mm-hmm. on this show before. And we made the comment on that show that Twin Peaks changed television. It changed what had come before it. Mm-hmm. And then everything that's, that comes after it owes a debt of gratitude to Twin Peaks. We mentioned The Sopranos and Breaking Bad, some you know shows of that nature. Right. This show, to me really cashes in on the promise that Twin Peaks made, mm-hmm. you know, all those years earlier. I think this is one of the finest hours of television that has ever been put on the screen. Let me say this at the beginning. They shot this on film. I think that was the right decision because mm-hmm. it looks like a movie. This whole thing, as we get further into it, it feels like an eight hour movie. Mm-hmm. And but this first hour is so good. What did you think of the way that they tell the story? Because they're booking it with uh, you're getting them in your two different time periods here. You're going to eventually get them in three time periods. But what do you think of the older versions of Cole and Hart telling the story? I like it. I think there's something unique about that. You know, like, okay, here's what happened. You know, I like they're going back and kind of discussing and showing us. From their perspective, you know, in the future, what had happened in the past. I like it. What's really great about it is um, you get these two guys commenting on what's happening. Mm -hmm. And what we're going to see is this series, uh, as we go further into the series, they're not reliable narrators. You're going to see what really happens, but you're getting their perspective and thoughts on it. And so you get even more of an insight into these two guys and who they are. Right. And I think it's a great framing device for this show. I think hearing them tell this story and coming back and forth, it just keeps upping everything. Because as, as I said here at the end of this episode, you get the news that, uh, that this has happened again. So if they caught the guy in 95, how could this happen again? So now you're going, well, what happened? How did they catch the guy? Right. Who did they catch? How did they get there? So. Yeah, from the screenwriting standpoint, it's just creating so much tension and want. And the show is like crack or raw oatmeal cookie dough with raisins or something, you know, because I ended up uh, binging the entire series in a in a day and a half. Uh, and I had seen it. Now, this is and let's say this. This is a first time watch for you, a rewatch mm-hmm. for me. But you are going to have everything seen by the time we get to to the uh, rest of the episode. Oh, so yeah, we can I'll be make, binge-watching yeah. this just like you in about a day. But it's, it's really <laughs> cool that you've only seen this first one to get your perspective right. on the series, which is really nice. So so let's, so let's going off of this first episode, um, the series lives and dies by these two guys, by the two actors that we have here. What are your thoughts on uh, Maddie Mack and Woody 60 minutes in? And what do you think of these two characters that they're playing, of uh, Russ Cole and Martin Hart? I love them. I think... I've been a fan of both of them for a long time. So I think that 
you know, the decision to have those two guys is awesome. I think they're incredible. And I think kind of the dynamic between them, they're so different. But I think they work so well together being who they are. You know what I mean? I mean, you get the true sense of who each character is. And they're so different. But I think they just are incredible together. There's a, there's a laid back quality to both of these guys. Mm-hmm. There's a non-egotistical quality to both of these guys. Uh, Woody Harrelson, we're going to spotlight Woody next week, uh, kind of get into his bio and some of his filmography. But Woody is great at leading roles and supporting roles and big movies and little movies. You know, Woody always shows up to play. And they were friends before this. And and as we said, McConaughey said, you know, well, get Woody to do it because he wanted to play Rust and thought Woody would be great. And they work so well. Mm -hmm. And McConaughey said something really interesting because he said, this is the first time they've worked together that they weren't connecting. They weren't coming together as characters. They were pushing on each other. And he said they've always been on each other's frequency. And you can tell how uh, you know tuned in they are mm-hmm. to each other. And the little moments of comedy come from them that are present in this episode, which is great because it's so dark. I know. You know but you do get the little moments of comedy. They're not jokes or laugh out loud, but there's little moments right. of levity and it's those two guys just together reacting and playing off of one another. And McConaughey says that, uh, you know, the way he and Woody work together is uh, he hits the ball to him. He hits it back harder. He hits it back harder. And then they try to see who can knock it out the park. He said, they just, you can tell they have a really good energy together. Um, Russ Cole, this character is one of the greats in television history that McConaughey's playing. You've only seen one episode. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on Russ Cole here at the beginning? Because Russ Cole is really something. I, I have a soft spot for Rust. I do too. So far, he's my favorite. He's, he's, uh, I feel like he's different than most characters we see today. Does that make any sense? There's, um, yeah, well, he's a pessimist and he says that in right. this first episode <laughs> and, What's really interesting about Rust is he is a pessimist and he espouses all of this pessimist ideology, yet he chooses to protect people. Right. You know, he says, you know, he has that great line about, I think we all need, you know, hold hands and walk out and, you know, towards extinction. One brothers and sisters, one more walk under the midnight sun. Yeah. But yet here he is, he's playing this guy who's guarding the door against these monsters, you know, and Mm -hmm. going into the labyrinth to find these monsters, uh, literally and figuratively as the show goes on. I want to throw this out in episode one, something for us to think about and for the listeners out there to think about. We talked about Joseph Campbell's monomyth at length on the Silence of the Lambs episode Mm -hmm. that we did. And Faith, that episode is available. Wherever podcasts can be found. Yes, but we did talk about... um, the monomyth in relation to Clarice Starling and her journey. And we spent a lot of time talking about Luke Skywalker and his journey in star Wars, because it, it completely applies to that. And, uh, the major beats, we lay those out in that Mm -hmm. episode, but, uh, kind of real quick, you know, you start off in one place and they go through a series of trials and tribulations and they end up in another place and they become the master of two worlds. And the hero's journey, I think is not just, uh, not just in for literature, for movies. I really think it's something that can be applied to life. But looking at it here, um, I want to throw this out, and I want you to think about this and listeners to think about this. I believe that Russ Cole has denied his hero's journey. He is denying his monomyth. He is denying his story. He is denying who he is and what he brings to the table. 
and he doesn't want to engage in that story. It's like if Luke Skywalker was like, I don't want to go off. I want to stay right here in the sand on Tatooine. And so just just keep an eye on that. Now, can you see that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, even just just one episode in. Yes. I okay. Can see it. Yeah. Uh, so moving on the setting here, as we said, the setting is really something and we see it affecting the characters. We're going to get in into that, especially as the series goes on. But we see it in the opening credits, and this is one of my personal favorite title sequences in all of television. And what did you think of this title sequence? I love it. Right. I'm with you. It's one of my favorites I've right. seen, too. <laughs> right. What What was it about it? I think from the music and just the way that it's kind of laid out, I feel like it depicts everything that we're going to see and go through. Yes. Yes, it does. Know, with the show. Yes, it does. And the thing that strikes me about it, because this is going to be so important to this series moving forward... The setting is literally engulfing these characters. You're mm -hmm. seeing it, you know, through them, transparent through them. And they open their eyes and there's the truck stop or there's the fire engulfing them. That's, you know, the cane fields. And, and that is a major theme of this series, that the environment uh, is affected by what's going on mm -hmm. and in a way affects what's going on. So... The evil that's present in this show spreads out and, and affects everyone, everyone in the show. And I think that title sequence does such a good job of planning that idea. Right. Um, it's literally there, but maybe when you're watching it, it's it's not you're not thinking that, you know, but subconsciously, you know, the environment mm -hmm. and you see these shots. Now, we were talking about we're from this area. You see these shots, these big shots. You see the plants in the back. There's nothing out there. That is exactly what these areas exactly. are when they're in Erath. This is what Erath looks like. Yeah. I've played at bars out there and that is what it, it looks like. That is how these people out there talk. Mm -hmm. And, and we're, we're one of these people. I mean, you know, so, um, yeah, I think, I think this is just an absolutely, um, fabulous title sequence. It just says so much about so. what this show is about. Exactly. So, uh, we have three big ideas presented here in this episode. Uh, ritual, occult murder, pessimism, and decay. We see the ritualistic murder in the crime. Cole and Hart are investigating. We see pessimism espoused by Cole, and we see decay all around. It's in the cityscape, the buildings. It's in marriages. It's in Danny Fontenot, the star pitcher from LSU that they go and talk to in this episode. We're going to be talking about all of these things as the series goes on. But what I want to focus on here is the ritualistic occult murder because this opens the show. So this is what we need to be focusing on, I think, here. Um, and this is really at the heart of this show. So what are your thoughts on this murder scene? And yeah, let's go with that. What are your thoughts on the murder scene? I think it is, I don't want to say brilliant because <laughs> I'm not going to say murder scenes are brilliant, but... <laughs> Yeah. But I think it's well done here. Yes. For what, you know, the message you're getting out for this, because I feel like it's yes. so true. Yes. You know, absolutely. I want to point out two occult references here uh, that we need to be aware of. The very first images of this show, uh, they're lighting the fire in that field around that tree. Mm -hmm. Okay. That fire is uh, bonfire, if I'm not mistaken here, comes from bale fire have you heard of like bale like a bale fire mm -hmm. okay that comes from the thing in the old testament when they would worship bale with the human sacrifice and all of this you know horn god worship okay mm -hmm. and then she literally has 
the horns, horns on her. Mm-hmm. Okay, which of course in turns it, you know, uh, is reminiscent of the Baphomet. We've talked about the Baphomet here, the the half animal, half human, uh, devil like creature that has the horns, the antlers on it. And um so that's what they're doing. Now, the Baphomet itself, the image is going to make an appearance later in the episode. So, But I want to I want to go ahead and get that out there. So that's planted right here in the beginning. I also want to make sure that we mention the tree because the tree is so important just for the fact that it has roots. And what we're going to be seeing is how far down the rabbit hole this thing really goes because it's mm-hmm. deep. It's deep and it has roots all over the state and the coast. But that tree, that image of the tree is one of the first and last in this series. So I just want to go ahead and make sure that we mention that. But you also have on her back, you have the spiral. And the Mm spiral is going to be an image that is used quite a bit in this series. And the spiral also, and and for listeners out there, um, take my word on it. You know, if you want to do research on this, do it, but take my word on it. There are certain symbols for pedophiles out there uh, that they, the FBI and law enforcement have identified. The symbol that they're using here, the spiral, is very, very similar to something that they uncovered in 2016 with the Pizzagate thing that we talked about. So these images are there. Okay, so mm-hmm. all of this is planted right here in in the beginning. And the uh, she is literally worshiping the tree. Okay, and as we said, the tree. We're gonna we're gonna talk more about the tree as the series goes on. So, um, what did you think of the missing girl billboard? Because that was something that really sticks out, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have the uh, Marie Fontenot case. So you got the missing girl that Rust notices going down the highway, and then they tap into something else here. So, what did you think of all that? Well, my first thought is that. Obviously, this goes back way further than just this one scenario. Right. Right? Yes, (laughs) yes, it does. This goes back way back. Way back. Way back. And we're going to get into this. Um, And we should have said this at the beginning. What we're doing is we're going to be presenting concepts, you know, um, and then linking them together, Mm -hmm. you know, as the show goes on. Because I think this show is one of the most important put on television, and I mean that sincerely. I, I I don't know how the people who run the agenda let this show out. And I'm not being funny on that because it says a lot that needs to be said. Mm -hmm. So which brings me to my next question. The right Reverend Tuttle that makes an appearance in this episode. He says there is a battle going on and he's referring to something a little deeper than just, you know, what's going on at that crime scene. Right. (laughs) Uh, The battle between good and evil. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. It's in the show. It's in the real world. It's everywhere. <laughs> I mean. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I, I really believe that. And I don't I don't want to be uh, preachy or evangelical. And I'll just go ahead and say this. I am a um, I'm a non-practicing Catholic. I was raised Catholic, but I'm a independent contractor, as they say, um, as Han Solo might say, I'm an independent <laughs> contractor. But, um, no, I believe in, I, I do, I believe in God and, and good, you know, I, right. I believe, you know, I want to be on the side of good. And yeah, there's a battle going on out there and all you have to do is look. Yeah, open your eyes. Open it's- your <laughs> eyes. I, and again, I don't want to sound preachy or evangelical. That is not what we are doing here. But uh, Faith and I have had long conversations about this. And I'm sure if you just look around close enough, you'll you'll see, see it. some things are not what they seem. Nope. So. Well, moving on to something a little nicer. 
Uh, how did you like all of the correct references to Louisiana? And again, we're from Louisiana, so we would catch the culture references here. We have a governor named Edwin. We have the baseball coach's name, Skip. Uh, what did you think of those? Did I miss Did I miss any? Not that I can think of, but I loved it. I don't... Do, are there a lot of shows that do this, like Louisiana shows? You know, I don't. I not, can't think of. Any. I can't think of any. You know, and Tuttle, and of course, Tuttle reminds me of Swaggart. You know, yes. Jimmy Swaggart. So I love that they did it. I feel like it. Kind yeah. Of, for me, I mean, if you're not exactly. from here, you, you mean, I get it, but I don't know. I guess it made it a little more special or something. And uh, <laughs> if you're not from here, Edwin, uh, the reason we got uh, so excited about hearing Edwin is because uh, one of our long time and and uh, really notorious and most popular governors was named edwin edwards and then skip is a reference to lsu baseball coach skip burtman who won mm-hmm. five national titles during his run from 84 to 2000 i believe but it was those little itty bitty things that were that I were know. just just peppered in so um i want to talk about one other uh kind of thing that's going to be running through the show and that is the psychosphere and he mentioned this in the show in the psychosphere. It, this comes from the writings of Lovecraft, and we're going to get even more into it as the show goes on. But uh, basically, he says during the episode, he says that he can taste the psychosphere. It tastes like aluminum and ash. And I get the idea that the psychosphere is the vibration that's going on. We talked about the fact that the place is feeling what's happened and and they're influencing each other. So what did you, what was your take on the psychosphere? I like exactly what you just said. I, I, I really didn't put much thought into that, but I, I like what you said about it. I mean, there, there's bad vibes, right. bad juju in the air. And uh, so I want to throw this out. I'm going to blow your mind with this. I think uh, he says it tastes like aluminum mm-hmm. and ash. And what do you see Russ Cole doing during his interview in the, uh, what year is it supposed to be? 2010, I believe. Mm-hmm. What is he doing during that interview? Drinking beer and smoking. <laughs> Drinking beer out of an aluminum can and smoking. Yep. He's kind of turned into the psychosphere in a way. So Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. Isn't that cool? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that cool? And uh, one other question about Rust. Do you get the idea that there's something mystical, ESP, empathic about Rust Cole here at the beginning? Yes. Do you get the idea that he is trying to shut those things off possibly? Yes. With the alcoholism and and, and all that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. yes I see it's it. Very it's, good. it's all over him. I see it. So, well, we are here for Maddie Mac, as we said. What do you think of Maddie Mac here? What what were your impressions here 60 minutes in? I loved him. Like you said, this might be actually one of my favorite performances just one episode in. He's so good. And I think his character is awesome. I think he says and does things that not a lot of people even want to think about yes you know i think he kind of pushes those boundaries and i think he's awesome i i may have said this on the show before i've never seen anyone uh as an actor be as still as bruce willis can be especially in a movie like unbreakable or the Mm -hmm. sixth sense and uh, i think we talked about that on our sixth sense episode like that he can be very still mcconaughey may have him topped here in true detective because he is so motionless Mm -hmm. and it's amazing it's an amazing performance because he's not moving and yet he's saying so much with his body language and he and uh martin hart makes the point during his interview session he says he was wrapped up i think like a coil or Mm -hmm. something like this i forget what the exact line is but he says uh and you can see it 
in rust. You can see that just at that that trip wire just yeah. waiting to go off. And then there's this weird sense of him being withdrawn and and uh I don't want to say nonviolent, but you know what I mean? Like he's like like he doesn't want the confrontation kind of thing, right. you know. It's a neat character. As we get more into it, you're going to see just how neat this guy he is. He is. I think the fact that he doesn't have furniture, he says he doesn't sleep. I don't know. He's very... He contemplates the moment of allowing your own crucifixion. Yes. I mean, this is a good time Charlie right here, right? right. Exactly. Um, so when we do our second episode, you will have seen everything. And like I said, I wanted to get you where you had just seen this first episode. So your impressions are, right. are new on it. How excited are you for this moving forward? I'm very excited because, like you said, we know that somebody's going to get caught, but I don't know where it's going to be going. You know, so this thing, I will tell you, this this thing is going to move in directions that you're that you're not, not seeing coming, <laughs> but but are going to make complete sense when they happen. So you're going right. to. I'm really excited to see what your take is on this. And as always, we are available on social media. We're available at www.latenightfright.com. We have an email address there, and this show is very involved. We are not going to sit here and tell you that our take on this show is the end-all, be-all on this show. So if you have any thoughts on the show, we would absolutely love to hear them because this is a fun show to talk about. This is a great show, and there's a lot to really dive into. And that's why we're doing this kind of one episode at a week. And we wanted to do Matthew McConaughey and this. What better? What better way? Yeah, exactly. So, well, that is all I have on True Detective episode one. That's all I've got. That's all you've got. I know I'm excited to watch. I'm excited for you to watch it too. Probably curl up tomorrow and watch. (laughs) So let's see. (laughs) So let's see. Uh, When we signed off on our Cage Match Mondays, we reminded everyone to keep their cage on a leash. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Faith? How should we how should we hmm. sign this off? I don't know. Keep your Mac attack on a leash? Maybe. Let's try it for this week. What do you think? <laughs> Let's go for what it. What do you think? I am Dan. And I am Faith. And we want you to keep, keep your, your Mac, Mac attack, attack on, on a leash. leash. We'll see you on the other side. Oh.